All right. Mark and Lynn, it's good to have you back for December. So thanks for braving the winter weather to be able to come back and be with us. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52 this morning and then going on into chapter 53. But if you turn to Isaiah 52, uh, then we're going to be again our reading there with verse 13. Isaiah 52 in verse 13. And as we're in the the passage this morning, is going to be talking about God is speaking. He's talking about his servant. And the person that he's referring to is Jesus Christ. And so just to be clear that as we come into into, uh, this passage. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now one of my favorite artists is a man by the name of Ron DeCiani. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with him. He is actually a world-renowned illustrator. Uh, he was the one that was given the responsibility of doing all the illustrations and publicity work for the 1980 Olympics. But he's also done a number of paintings depicting scenes that come right out of the Bible, as well as paintings that depict elements of the Christian life. He refers to himself as a Christian who's disguised as an artist because he has effectively used that platform of a world-renowned artist to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In most of his paintings, Deciani does something that is very subtle and unexpected in most of his artwork. He, he always puts a small cross in his artwork that depicts either a biblical scene or the Christian life. It's subtle. You don't see it at first. But he does that in order to remind us that everything that is in the Bible ultimately points to Christ, the sacrifice that he has made for us, and the life that he has called us to live in him. One of the interesting things to do if you're looking at a Deciani painting is to look for the cross, and I warn you, sometimes it'll take you a while. More recently, the last few years, he's done a new Advent Christmas painting called The First Coming. And that painting is no exception to 
the cross being there. It, uh, it looks like a traditional manger scene. It's got Mary, it's got Joseph, it's got baby Jesus in the manger. It's got a couple of shepherds, it's got a lamb, it's got the star of David there. And off to the right, just off the horizon, is the moon. And uh, it took me a while, but I came to find the cross was subtly drawn into the face of the moon. It's a clear reminder that Jesus Christ came to earth in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. There's a Christian or a um, song that's uh, been written that it, um, says Jesus was born in a cradle in the shadow of the cross, and that's very true. You know, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter seven, and we looked at the incarnation. We looked at the coming of Jesus Christ, that eternal person, second person of the Trinity, who in a moment in time took humanity on Himself so that He became fully human, but at the same time, he remained fully God. That he came to be the perfect Savior and sacrifice for sin. And as we were going through that announcement of Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation, we found ourselves finishing up in Matthew chapter 2 because that moment in time comes in Matthew chapter 2. And Mary and Joseph welcome the arrival of baby Jesus. And Matthew tells us that in that moment we have the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That is, God with us. But as we come to chapters 52 and 53 here in Isaiah, he's now describing that shadow of the cross over the birth scene of Jesus. He's looking at the fact that that cross and the shadow of the cross will be over Jesus' entire life. And he's giving to us a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 750 years before it occurs. And you're going to be amazed at the detail that he's going to give as we go through this passage. It's interesting because in the first century, the Jewish teachers of the time mostly agreed that in Isaiah 52, 53, that Isaiah was talking about the Messiah, but it was totally confusing to them. Because here you have a suffering and dying Messiah. And how do you jive that with all of the other Old Testament scriptures that talk about a victorious reigning Messiah? And so in the first century... One of two things had begun to happen. One is some teachers were saying, well, there's two messiahs. The first one's going to come and he will suffer and die. Then the second messiah will come and he will be victorious and reign. Most of the teachers just decided we're going to believe, uh, treat Isaiah like he goes from chapter 51 to chapter 54. We'll just ignore the suffering God in a one. And we'll just talk about the Messiah that Isaiah talks about in chapter 9 of Isaiah, where he says about the Messiah, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. We'll, we'll go with that Messiah. But what they did not see is the fact that there is indeed just one Messiah, just one Savior. But he comes not just once, but he comes twice. He has come the first time to be the suffering Messiah who dies for us. But he will return as the victorious king who will reign. 
And so we're going to take some time here and look at Isaiah 52 into 53 and see what he has to say to us about Jesus being the suffering Messiah who's died for us. And he begins at the end of chapter 52 here, these three verses, 13 and 15, and he gives us a summary of the entire passage. He gives a summary of the fact that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ fulfilled the Father's plan of redemption and salvation. And so to fully understand what Isaiah is doing here and the scene that he is painting, you and I need to place ourselves here this morning at the foot of the cross one minute before Jesus dies. We've witnessed him being scourged and beaten by the Roman soldiers. We watched as he made the exhausting walk up the Golgotha. We heard the hammer hit the nails. And then we watched him hang on that cross in agony for six hours. That's the Jesus that Isaiah is describing here in these three verses. And he's going to give us three things here in this summary. He's going to say, well, here's how God sees Jesus in that moment. And then he's going to come back and he's going to say, well, this is how people saw Jesus in that moment. And then he's going to say, but here's the ultimate result of what Jesus accomplished in that moment. And so let's look at the summary. And first of all, God's view of Jesus in that moment, one minute before he dies as he's up there on the cross, is God declares, he has accomplished my purpose and plan. He has accomplished my purpose and plan. He says in verse 13, he says, See, my servant will act wisely, and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He says, see, if you have a different version than the NIV, you probably have the word behold. And that's kind of a better word in the sense of what he's saying here, because this word see is actually a, a, a command. It's an imperative. And what it communicates is, hey, listen up. Come close and focus in. Because this is the main thing. This is the important thing. And the important thing is, my servant, and we know the servant is Jesus Christ, he will act wisely. That phrase, act wisely, means to have the wisdom and insight to accomplish a mission or task. It's to have the wisdom and insight to accomplish a mission or task. It's knowing exactly what to do in order to accomplish what you've been sent to do. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, moments from death, as the world, as we're going to see in a moment, just sees a man who's been brutalized and defeated, God sees a son who is his perfect servant, who's done exactly what he sent him to do and accomplished the purpose that he had for him. He has paid the penalty for sin to rescue a fallen and broken human race. God also knows that this death will not be the final chapter for Jesus because he then says he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Isaiah sees the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus that occurs three days after his death. Paul may well have had Isaiah 52, 13 in mind when he wrote those well-known verses in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 10. 
In your relationship with one another, Paul writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And that's what God sees when he looks at his son on the cross. Human view of Jesus in this moment is different. They see a man who's been brutalized and defeated. Verse 14, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. As they would look at Jesus on the cross moments before his death, they're so appalled by his appearance that they have to look away. They have to look away. The cumulative effect of the beatings that Jesus Christ has endured and the physical abuse that he has endured is culminated in this moment on the cross. He was slapped around by the temple guard when appearing before the high priest before his trial even started. And then he was beaten by their fists immediately after they condemned him. He was scourged with a cat of nine tails a beating so severe that more, than not, more often than not, a man would die from the scourging itself. He was beaten then by the Roman soldiers further. Now he has endured six hours on this cross, and people are appalled. Word means to be shocked and emotionally shattered. It's a word that was used to describe walking on to the devastation of a battlefield after a battle. It was used to describe the reaction of stepping out after a natural disaster. Some of you were appalled back in 2013 when you saw the devastation of the tornado here in Washington. Talks being appalled was used, the word was used to describe the emotions of a bereaved spouse as they wailed in their grief. And this is what people experienced when they saw this crucified Jesus. It was an emotionally shattering moment. But the ultimate results of Jesus' death on the cross was he made payment for sin that leads to forgiveness. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. The phrase, he will sprinkle many, na- many nations, takes us into the temple. They would take a sacrifice that had been made and not all sacrifices were burned on the altar. Many times they, they weren't. And they would take a blood from the sacrifice because they're doing thousands of sacrifices every day. And they would take some of the blood from the sacrifice and they would sprinkle it onto the four corners of the altar. And that symbolized the fact that that person who would offer, had brought that offering, that their sin was forgiven. 
The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross provided the payment for our sins. Satisfied God's holy demand that sin be punished. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can now receive forgiveness and eternal life in him. And it's the reason that the next to last thing that Jesus said on the cross, just before he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he died, as he literally raised himself up and with a voice that could be heard a distance away, declared, it is finished. It is paid in full. Jesus Christ had just endured the torment of judgment and hell for our sin on the cross. It was finished. It was done. And he's ready to go back to be with the Father. And he says, it is done, finished, paid. Sin has been atoned for. And the sacrifice will not just be for Jews, but he declares in Isaiah here in the Old Testament, it's going to be for all the nations, Gentiles included. And I love this part. And he says, kings will shut their mouths. Isaiah takes a quick look to Jesus' second coming here. When the rulers and authorities who will be on that world at the time are going to stand in awed silence before Christ as he appears because they, for the first time, realize who he really is. And they are struck with awe, fear, and they're silent. Every politician and leader on the planet will finally be quiet (laughs) and have nothing to say because Christ himself has appeared. And when Jesus returns, there's going to be no room for disbelief. In this life, we have the opportunity to see and understand the gospel. That's what this church age is all about. We have the opportunity to to be presented the truth of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he did on the cross, even what we're talking about this morning, and what it means to come into faith and a saving relationship with him. And we... We, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a way that we do not understand, we receive understanding and we receive the ability to exercise faith. And as we then respond and we put faith in Jesus Christ, we receive this forgiveness. We receive that sprinkling that, he, that Isaiah is talking about. And then we get to stand before God in awe and silence and song and praise and we worship him now. We don't have to wait to heaven. We've gathered this morning to stand before God in awe and worship Him. But the day is going to come that even those who've rejected Him in this life will be forced to bend the knee and declare Him Lord and King. And that's the picture that Isaiah has pictured here. They will be silent as they stand in awe of the Christ that they now recognize, this is who you are. And as, God, as we look at Jesus Christ on the cross one minute before he dies, Isaiah says, God looks down and says, you have accomplished my purpose and plan. And even though humankind says, no, he's just a brutalized and defeated man, the reality is the result of Christ dying on the cross is he has provided the payment for sin in a way of salvation where we can receive forgiveness from that sin and the gift of eternal life to be with the Lord forever. That's Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. Nice summary. But then he moves into chapter 53. 
And he begins to explain in more detail how did the death of Jesus on the cross provide salvation for us? In these verses, just 12 verses, Isaiah gives us an overview of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he starts by the fact that the life and ministry of Jesus was dismissed and rejected by most people of the day. Jesus Christ was dismissed and rejected by the majority of people of his day. Verses 1 through 3 in Isaiah 53, he says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. That was the response of most people to Jesus in his day. He starts with a rhetorical question in verse 1, and we can paraphrase the, paraphrase the question in a New Testament setting by who will believe the message of this gospel that the death of Jesus is what brought us salvation? Who will believe that this Jesus, with his humble birth, his obscure early life, his unimpressive appearance, his humiliating death on the cross, is the Lord's arm, which means the Lord's power at work to save us? And the rhetorical answer that Isaiah is looking for is no one. No one would believe that. And that's why at the end of the verse he, he says, it's been revealed. People don't come to that conclusion that Christ is the Messiah who's died for us on their own. It's revealed to them by God. It's revealed to them by God. The understanding and the ability to exercise faith is by the grace of God. Jesus himself said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and then I will raise them up on the last day. And so Isaiah says, looking, who would look at this Jesus and conclude that he is the suffering Messiah who's died and provided a way of salvation? Well, nobody will do that. And it's because, first of all, Jesus was born just like any other man. He was raised in poverty in a very humble household. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. That look, look, picture a family tree. And here's all the names. And out on the branch is Joseph. And then this little shoot comes out on that branch, and there's Jesus, a new generation in a family tree. So he was just born in a family, just like anybody else. And not only that, but he was born in humility and poverty, like a root out of dry ground is like picturing this fact that Jesus Christ is like this little shrub in the middle of the wilderness, you know, scraggly, just sort of surviving there, nothing, nothing around him, it's dry, it's just arid area, this like, yeah, he's because he was poor, he was humble, he was obscure. And he goes on and, and says, so there was no beauty or majesty there. Beauty refers to his physical appearance. Jesus was not handsome. He was not some guy that, that was buff, built, and strong, and muscular. In fact, he was just a really very, very plain Jewish guy. He had no majesty. He was not impressive. He had no sign of wealth and no sign of position. In the first century, Jewish 
community, if you were wealthy you know, or had a position of authority, you dressed a certain way. You had flowing robes that were full of color. You wore a lot of bling. You had gold rings. You had gold around your neck and pendants because you wanted to flaunt. I have wealth and I have power. Jesus said none of that. In short, he says, there was nothing about him to either draw us or even give us the desire to know who he is. In fact, people chose to dismiss and reject him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Despise means both to dismiss and then mock, ridicule. That leads to full rejection. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Familiar means he knew this, he knew suffering and pain by experience. And in summary, he was despised and held in low esteem. This word esteem was an accounting term. It meant to determine actual value of something. And so people looked at Jesus and concluded, you got no value at all to me. So they dismissed him and they mocked him. But the death of Jesus Christ, in reality, was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 4 through 6, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took on our sin and our brokenness, paid the penalty for our sin by suffering the judgment of God on our behalf. The suffering and pain that Jesus experienced in verse 3 was not his own, it was ours. It was ours that he took on himself. It says he took up our pain. That word took up means to lift the burden off somebody. It's to walk up and just lift that burden up off their shoulders. And what he lifted was our guilt. He lifted up our failures. He lifted up our griefs. And then he bore our suffering. The word bore means then to place the burden on yourself. To place someone else's burden on yourself. And the suffering was our brokenness. These broken bodies that can get sick, ill, and eventually will age. Broken relationships that most of us, if not all of us, have experienced to one degree or another. Broken lives, broken dreams, broken everything. Jesus took all that and he put it on himself. And he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierce means to be fatally wounded, and it's a clear picture of the cross. He took the burden off, and he placed it on himself when he was on the cross. 
crucifixion will not be developed by the Romans as a form of execution for 600 years. And yet Isaiah sees it here. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The word crushed had the idea of being trampled to death. But it was also a form of capital punishment. They would lay a person out flat on their back on a, sla- on a stone slab and they would take other stone and they would lay it upon them one layer at a time, adding weight, until after a time of agonizing with all that weight being placed on you, you finally were crushed to death. Jesus took on our sin layer after layer after layer and it crushed his soul. until he finally died in payment for our sin. And through Jesus' death, Isaiah says, we have received peace with God and spiritual healing from sin. His punishment has brought us peace with God. That's that wonderful word, shalom. He's made us whole. He's made us complete. And he has brought us into harmony with God. And his wounds on the cross have brought us healing. From the spiritual death that we had experienced because of sin, he has healed us and brought us into a relationship with the Lord. This was necessary because we couldn't do it ourselves because we're a bunch of sheep that have wandered from God. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he did all of this willingly without complaint. In verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He went willingly and without complaint to take the burden of sin off of us and place it upon himself and to be pierced and crushed for our transgressions. And then Jesus was buried. This is a cool little tidbit Isaiah gives us. Look at verse 9. He says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And you go, wait a minute. You see, Jesus Christ died a criminal in the eyes of the government. And so he should have been buried in an unmarked mass grave along with everybody else that had been crucified in and around Jerusalem that day along with any body that was not claimed and needed to be buried. And they had a large potter's field and it should have, he just should have been thrown into a mass grave unmarked and just being forgotten. But we know from Scripture that's not what happens. What happens is a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea gives to Jesus, allows them to bury Jesus in his tomb. So he was marked a criminal, but he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Isaiah saw that happening 700 years before it actually happens. And then finally... There is the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He, after he has suffered and after he has died, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's his resurrection. Isaiah sees his resurrection. And now people continue to receive forgiveness in life through Jesus. Second half of that verse, by his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Here's the cool thing with this. Almost everything in this chapter has been in the past tense. Up until this verse, this is future. It's pointing to the fact that after Jesus Christ has accomplished all of this, generation after generation after generation will continue to find forgiveness, healing, and eternal life in Christ and what he did that one time at the cross. And you and I are here this morning because the work of Jesus Christ continues through his church generation to generation, offering the gospel of peace and reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus. And it's the message that we have been given the responsibility to share with this generation and the generations to come until Jesus Christ returns. And so here we have the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ described in detail 700 years before his birth. Not only was Isaiah looking ahead 700 years and seeing the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, but he also was seeing people's reluctance to believe and receive him in their dismissive rejection of him. But Isaiah could have been looking ahead 2,700 years and seeing our world today. And the fact that as we look at our community and our world, people continue to struggle to accept the truth of who Jesus Christ is in order to receive forgiveness in the life that he offers. And we should not be surprised by that. Because as Isaiah said, this is not something that somebody can conclude themselves. This is something that must be revealed to them by God. And so it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding of the gospel and the gift of faith to believe that they can now respond to. Our biblical response as we look at a world that is not to say, why do you reject God like it's their fault? It's to realize, no, we have a responsibility to live as salt and light before them so they might see the reflection of Jesus. That we have a responsibility to pray for the Lord to reveal the truth of who Jesus is and to give people that gift of faith that they might put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then, as we have opportunity, we are the mouth of God and the mouth of Jesus to share the gospel with people who need to hear it. As believers, you and I are still sheep. By nature, we are stubborn and we're still prone to get ourselves into trouble if we go off on our own. The only reason that we are clean is because Jesus washed us clean. You and I do not have this relationship with the Lord because we're better than others. Or that we're smarter. Or that we're more deserving. But because the Spirit of God revealed the truth of Christ in a way that we had understanding, He gave us the gift of faith that we might believe, and we simply said yes to a free gift offered unconditionally. And so Christmas is a wonderful scene. It is that 
Diziani picture painting is just a beautiful picture. It's quiet. I've seen snow falling. It's the Middle East. Probably didn't happen, but even that looks nice. But the shadow of the cross is there. So this is the time of thanksgiving and worship as we remember the life that we have in Christ and the wonder of Emmanuel, like we said last week. But it's also a time to remember that as we carry the pain that we have in our lives, and we do have pain, we do have suffering, life can get hard. Jesus Christ bore that very pain and walks with us through it. His presence is there. His grace is there. His compassion is there. And his healing is there. Some of that healing we will experience in this life. Some of that healing will wait until eternity. But whatever pain you may be having and whatever struggle you may be experiencing, Jesus took that very pain and struggle to the cross. And now he walks with you through it. And this is the time to pray for this broken world. That more people will come to understand and respond to Jesus as God does his work. And that we will be faithful to be reflections and voices of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that many will come to trust him and join us in this family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pause and we do thank you, God. We marvel at the wonder of your word that 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah saw this clear picture of him. We thank you for all that Jesus Christ indeed has done as Emmanuel. And we pray now, Father, that in this season that we remember is coming, that we might be encouraged, that we might be refreshed in our own faith and walk with you. And even more committed to being witnesses and prayer warriors for the people around us who do not yet know him. That they might come to saving faith and that you, through their salvation, might receive glory. And it's in Jesus we pay. Amen. Let's stand together and sing silent.